0: I am your New Books Network host, Lavinia Stan, here in Nova Scotia, Canada. We are talking today with Dr. Adam uh, Adam Lajones, Professor of Public Policy at uh, St. Francis Xavier University in Atlantic Canada. Good morning, Adam. Good
1: morning, Lavinia. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for agreeing to talk uh, with me about your book, Lock, Stock and Icebergs, a History of Canada's Arctic Maritime Sovereignty which was published with the University of uh, British Columbia Press in 2016. Adam is an associate professor at the Mulroney Institute of Government here at St. Francis Xavier University, where he is also known as one of the pillars of the public policy program, teaching courses um, uh, that are attended by scores of students each year. A former Irving Shipbuilding Chair in Canadian Arctic uh, Maritime Security Policy, Adam has an impressive research record which spans historical and current issues across a number of themes and disciplines, um, public policy and history, and which includes three authors' books, um, six co edited volumes and collections, more than a dozen book uh, chapters, and numerous, numerous peer-reviewed articles and reports. For example, besides the book, which uh, we will discuss today, Adam also participated with others in writing a book on uh, China's Arctic uh, aspirations, the emerging interests of a near Arctic state and what they mean for Canada, which was published with the University of Calgary Press in 2018, and another one, on Canadian Armed Forces Arctic uh, Operations 1941 to uh, 2015, historical and contemporary lessons learned, which appeared in uh, Fredericton at the Gregg Center in uh, 2017. In addition, Adam prepared collections of documents relevant for the history of Canadian Arctic sovereignty and security, which uh, I'm sure helped people like me with little knowledge of the Arctic to understand Canada's involvement in it. He works on questions of Arctic sovereignty and security policy and has written extensively on the Arctic operations of the Canadian Armed Forces, maritime security, Canadian-American Cooperation in the North, and Canadian Arctic History. He is a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and the Arctic Institute of North America, both of them based in Calgary, as well as a fellow of the Center for the Study of Security and Development at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Adam sits on the editorial board of the Canadian Naval Review and uh, of the journal Arctic. Adam, hello.
1: Hello, Lavinia.
0: Thank you again for accepting this invitation. I oh, know... Thank you for that it... kind introduction. Good. Uh, I'm very happy. I'm very happy to, uh, to have this, this discussion today. Um, I know that you advise the Canadian Senate. Could you tell us more about the context that brought you to Ottawa And what did you tell the senators?
1: Sure, well, over the last several years, I've uh, spoken to several Senate and House of Commons committees studying Arctic security and maritime security policy, which isn't uncommon for academics. What senators and MPs are looking for from people like us is a bit of clarity and a little bit more nuance from what they would normally hear uh, coming through the daily news feeds. If you open the newspaper, you're going to see Arctic stories about shipping, the Russians, the Chinese, a little bit of fear monitoring here and there, a little bit of a sovereignty crisis here and there. All very general, not a lot of support, I think, you would get from, from the popular media. And so... Where academics contribute to government policy discussions is providing a bit of background and nuance. And so after particularly the most recent invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces, the big question is, well, what is the security dynamic in the Canadian Arctic? What is the threat? There's a lot of discussion about Russia being a very general threat to Canada and NATO. Russia is, of course, our Arctic neighbor. So what does that look like in the real world. How does that play out? We can assume the existence of a threat, but what sort of threat? How would it emerge? The same thing with China. China has shown a great deal of interest in the Arctic, a lot of investment, a lot of scientific operations. And so what senators and MPs hear from from day to day is simply, well, China is very generally um, a competitor of the West, ipso facto. In the Arctic, there may be a danger well, what does that look like? Is it an economic danger? Is it a political danger? Are we talking about illegal fishing? Are we talking about trespassing? Are we talking about hard defense considerations, submarines and warships? I think what academics bring to government conversations is a bit of extra nuance, a little bit of extra background to say, perhaps we should be worrying a little bit more about this and a little bit less about that.
0: That's, that's an excellent uh, answer. Now, let's go back to your book, Lock, Stock and Icebergs, uh, which I would describe as a political history of the Northwest Passage. And you can contradict me here. Could you explain, uh, explain the title, please? Where does it come from?
1: Well, it certainly is a political history. Uh, The the title comes from Brian Mulroney, actually. Quite fitting as I'm sitting in the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government Building here at St. Effects. In the 1980s, during one of the periodic sovereignty crises uh, between Canada and the United States, Brian Mulroney had uh, Ronald Reagan into Ottawa, and he was trying to convince him that the Arctic waters, the Northwest Passage, as it's commonly known, uh, were Canadian lock, stock, and icebergs. There was no nuance. They were not Canadian territorial waters through which an American right of transit existed. They were not exclusive economic zones through which you know, they were different competing international rights. They were internal historic waters. They were every bit as Canadian as the river flowing beneath Parliament Hill. Canadian lock, stock, and icebergs. And I thought it was quite an apt title because it encapsulates Canadian policy and rhetoric in particular over the past, we could say, 70 years, probably even the last 120 years, depending how you'd, how, you, how far you're willing to push it back. Going through House of Commons debates, listening to party leaders and prime ministers, the Canadian position has always been that the Arctic waters were entirely inalienably Canadian. Now, what this book does is it... it provides a bit of a narrative behind the scenes. Well, that's great. People like Mulroney, people like Mackenzie King can go out and say, these are entirely Canadian waters. The big question is, why? How? On what basis? The reality is, uh, before Mulroney at least, Canadian prime ministers for the better part of a century would tell their American colleagues would tell their colleagues in the house of commons that the Arctic waters were Canadian lock stock and icebergs. But if anybody asked them why, on what basis, what legal grounds do you claim that the reality is they didn't often have an answer. So what this book is, it's a history of the Canadian government trying to find that answer over the last hundred years.
0: Um, Now, before we move on Could you briefly explain for our audience, which is formed mostly of non-specialists like me in this area, what do you mean when you refer to the Arctic? I believe that most of our listeners imagine the Arctic as surrounding the North Pole. But how wide or how large is this area? and which are the southernmost localities included in it on the canadian side and on the other sides if you know you know also what happens on the other side of the north pole in russian territory and you mentioned russia and china but but how about sweden norway and uh, the scandinavian countries are they are they also players in this arctic uh, uh, area
1: of course, and anyone who is working in the field, writing about the Arctic, that's almost always the first question they have to answer. Now, the reality is there isn't a definition of the Arctic. There are multiple different definitions of the Arctic, and a biologist, and a geologist, and a politician, they are, they're are—they're all going to use very different understandings of the region. And in fact, how you define the Arctic speaks volumes to what you're trying to work on, what you're trying to accomplish. So my book used a political definition of the Arctic, the three northern territories uh, in Canada, and then of course the the high Arctic islands, the Northwest Passage. That's my definition. But the definition could equally be based on population. Uh, where are northern inhabitants living? It could be based on the tree line. Uh, often the Arctic is simply uh, bracketed off by different parallels or the isotherm. There are there are a dozen different definitions of what the Arctic is. A big part of that is that the Arctic, even ge- you know, geographically, if you were to draw a simple circle around uh, the polar regions, is going to be radically different. So you mentioned the Scandinavians. Uh, because of different uh, differences of climate caused by currents, and, uh, you know, various geological features, the Scandinavian region may be uh, roughly parallel to the Canadian high Arctic, but environmentally radically different. And so the Scandinavian Arctic, which is the Arctic, is more akin in terms of temperature and vegetation to Northern Ontario in many respects. So what listeners have to remember is, is there isn't an Arctic. There is no one clear arctic with a set of political strategic environmental problems or considerations there are many different arctics and the arctic can be defined many different ways hmm.
0: interesting uh, adam um, a question just popped uh, up in my mind you know i mean uh, we are when when so many countries are involved in the arctic and have a stake in it what what's a uh, 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 is it is it full of resources is it a, a habitat for some uh, uh aboriginal groups uh, um or is it is it a fishing resource what's what's at stake here ultimately why why do why do canadians want to declare the arctic <laughs> theirs and maybe the russians also on the other side <laughs>
1: Well, there's a great deal of stake, Lavinia, but we come back to your first question too, and providing clarity, particularly to policymakers, there are some things that aren't at stake that people believe to be. Going back to, I would say, 2007, when people really started to pay attention with oil prices spiking before the recession, the peak oil theories circulating, gaining a lot of prominence the US Geological Survey published uh, studies showing that an enormous amount of undiscovered oil was present in the Arctic. And in fact, the Arctic contained you know, a good chunk of what was left of the world's hydrocarbons. So all of a sudden, people were, were thinking of the Arctic as this contested basin where the Russians and the Canadians, the Americans, the Chinese perhaps, would compete over resources. Now, 15 years later, give or take. We, we've realized, well, no, that's not the case at all. Now, that misconception is still circulating. You still hear people everywhere from the media to government saying, well, the Chinese or the Russians are after our oil. Well, no nonsense. Almost every natural resource in the Arctic is very clearly delineated within either territory or continental shelf. The Russians aren't going to challenge Canada's continental shelf because they have their own continental shelf that they don't want anybody to challenge. Now, the one exception might be something called the extended continental shelf. And if you Google overlapping Arctic claims, that's what you're going to get. The Danes from Greenland, the Russians, the Canadians, all have overlapping extended continental shelf, which legally means, you know, if this claim is is confirmed, we would be responsible for or have administration for the seabed resources. So all of the oil and gas at the North Pole and even beyond. And there's big overlap. The reality, however, is one, nobody wants this oil right now. And it's very unlikely that we're going to want it in the future because of the cost. What we've seen from offshore Arctic drilling, Shell, uh, Gazprom, BP, Exxon, they have spent often tens of billions of dollars in failed attempts to drill wells 30 miles offshore. Very, very close to oil infrastructure. These overlapping areas, these sources of conflict in theory, these are hundreds, even thousands of kilometers offshore into the northwest passage pardon into the into the into the arctic ocean around the uh, the polar basin and the, the north pole the cost of getting at these hydrocarbons would be astronomical unless we're looking at $300 oil nobody's going there the russians the americans the canadians we have plenty of much much easier oil minerals onshore deposits all very much within accepted Uh, jurisdictions. There really isn't a race for resources. And so that's one of those narratives that I think a lot of academics, at least over the last 10 years, have tried to tamp down like, no, there's not a threat. There are, however, emerging competitive areas. Fishing is one of them. It's one we don't think about quite as much. We think oil and gas in the Arctic, but, but fish. You now have salmon showing up in the middle of the Northwest Passage because the world's oceans are warming. Uh, China is a particular concern. Uh, China operates the world's largest illegal distant water fishing fleet. Uh, And of course, over the last 10 years, we've seen a rapacious Chinese um, appetite for illegal fishing around the Galapagos Islands, South America, off Africa. It's a very, very serious problem looking forward 10 years into the future, there's no reason to believe that that doesn't materialize in the Beaufort Sea, and that's something that we have to really take seriously. We're also seeing a lot of activity in the Northwest Passage that has never been there before. Everything from big cruise ships with a thousand people on them, I've been on a couple of these, very, very well run, but if something goes wrong, the question is, how do you rescue a thousand people? And I'm afraid the answer is you don't. I can tell you I slept with my boots on as we transited through some of the more dangerous sections of the Northwest Passage because I was ready to get to the lifeboats. I mean, it's a dangerous thing to do. You've also got a whole new category of people moving through the Arctic, uh, what I would call yahoos, idiots in sailboats, skidoo's, kayaks, canoes. These are people who are constantly being saved by the Coast Guard. Uh, These are people that do not Register, they're not reporting on AIS systems. We don't know precisely where they are. They're constantly getting into into trouble. This is a real consideration. And even strategic questions. So you ask, well, why do we care if the Northwest Passage is Canadian? Well, if it's Canadian, we get to regulate it, which means we get to control these yahoos, means we get to control shipping, which means we have much greater control over environmental preservation in these very delicate waters. And it means that we get to control access by foreign state vessels. The Arctic, as a transit route, an international strait, means the Chinese, the Russians can sail right on through. It's something we traditionally have not wanted. As Canadian waters, that's not a right.
0: Your book is an engaging read, although you do include a wealth of historical information that explains the twists and turns involved in Ottawa's claim over the Arctic waters between around 1880 up until the 1980s. Your colleague, Dr. Peter Kickert, wrote this in his review of your book, and I'm citing here. La Jeunesse focuses on the evolution of Canadian thinking on three interconnected issues. How to define Canada's Arctic waters, how to legally and politically justify a claim to those waters, and how to advance an official claim on the international stage, end of quote. In exploring these themes, he further writes, you take the reader on a journey through the historic legal thinking of Canadian officials as they try to build a case for Canada's sovereignty over the Arctic waters, and you explain the key areas that have defined Canadian policy. And Peter further writes in charting a course through these legal developments La jeunesse highlights the complex interplay between law, diplomacy and state practice that has shaped Canada's Arctic policy. Could you take us briefly through your argument as you presented in the book?
1: Yes, the the, the core question there is about complexity. And that is what the book was trying to to convey and also to dismiss certain basic understandings of Arctic sovereignty as a dichotomous, we have it or we don't. Uh, a use it or lose it, as Stephen Harper said, or lock, stock and icebergs, as, as Brian Mulroney once said. Now, the reality is, is sovereignty is not something that can simply be achieved through force of presence. You don't send 10 icebreakers into the Northwest Passage and say, well, that helps our sovereignty. You don't yell at an American president and say, oh, that's being strong. We're protecting our sovereignty. The reality is that securing sovereignty in the arctic or even defining what our sovereignty in the arctic even is is this complex interplay of strategic and legal and political questions so to give you an example in the 1950s canada was trying to figure out how it could claim sovereignty in the arctic we knew we wanted it when i say sovereignty of the arctic i mean the waters How do we claim these waters? And so for years, external affairs poured over international legal precedents, laws, the law of the sea to try and find some vehicle by which it could claim these waters. Politically, doing that was a very real problem because the United States, which was at the time and remains today the main proponent of the freedom of navigation around the world, was very much opposed to any country claiming more than what the U.S. thought was uh, an appropriate and legal amount of territory and water. I should say maritime territory. And it wasn't just the Arctic. The Americans were now in the 1950s and the 1960s very interested in unilateral maritime extensions of of territory from the Philippines, uh, the Indonesians, all over the world. And so When Canada would go to the U.S. to say, look, you know, we feel that these Arctic waters should be Canadians. The Americans were not looking at the Arctic waters. They were looking at at Indonesia and saying to the Canadians, if we give you this, like, well, first off, we don't particularly care about the Arctic. We'd like to give you that. But there are these huge international uh, principles at stake. And so if we are seen to be going along with a Canadian claim in the Arctic then that's gonna really hurt us all around the world. And so that is, is one of the main political and strategic drivers that has always been with Canada. Because we have always had to, or felt that we had to convince the Americans to come along with us, to accept, or at the very least not challenge Canada's claim. Because the nightmare scenario was always that Canada moves forward and says, the Arctic is Canadian, we are legislating control over those waters. And then the next day to have an American icebreaker sail through, conducting a freedom of navigation voyage. How do you stop that? It's very embarrassing. It's very politically damaging. And of course, we didn't want to hurt our relationship with the Americans. There's a lot going on in the Arctic. There are... uh, Enormous defense projects we are building with the United States. There are American submarines sailing through, doing things that, frankly, we wanted them to do. And so throwing a monkey wrench into that relationship and injecting the political and legal question of sovereignty would throw off a functional working relationship, which during the Cold War was a very important one. There were even domestic reasons. Over, Over many years, the Canadian government pushed the sovereignty question in the Arctic back because it wanted to focus on more important waters, the Gulf of St. Lawrence, uh, Dixon entrance out west, Hecate Strait. For a long time, the Arctic was allowed to sort of become a tertiary priority as we pushed those 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 more important claims. Legally, we're always the Canadian government was always watching international precedent, watching what other countries were doing, and trying to figure out a, a more appropriate way to package our sovereignty. You know, we started with the with with the the fundamental understanding that the northern waters were ours. Figuring out how to prove that, how to back that up in international law, was a constantly changing um, dynamic because, of course, international law was constantly changing over the course of of the Cold War. Uh, Three law of the sea conventions, uh, the nature of historic internal waters, international straits, always changing. And of course, External Affairs is watching that and saying, well, how do we how do we fit what we want into this changing legal dynamic? So all of those different factors came to play together.
0: So, uh, um, Adam, You explain why the Arctic is important to Canada, but what what, uh, uh, do the Russians have to say about Canada asserting um, sovereignty or claims over part of the Arctic? What's the Russian position in this respect?
1: Well, there's a curious irony there, Lavinia, where if you were to ask who is Canada's probably only major ally when it comes to our political claims to the Arctic waters, I would tell you it's the Russians. Uh, Over the course of the Cold War, the Russians have never been uh, particularly friendly to Canada, and I would say today that tradition holds true. But in this particular instance, there's a a confluence of, of interests here. So the way Canada has ultimately decided to legislate our sovereignty over the Arctic waters is to draw what are called straight baselines, basically lines on the map around the northern archipelago, the Queen Elizabeth Islands, and to say within those lines, all of these waters are historic Canadian waters. Now, the Russians have never objected to this because they have their own Arctic archipelagos. Little different, geographically different, historically different, smaller, but they have done much the same thing, drawn straight baselines around those archipelagos and claimed the waters within as entirely Russian. Now, there's never been any formal understanding between the Russians and the Canadians, but I have seen documents from the 1970s where, let's say, informal conversations were recorded between external affairs and the Russians, whereby the Canadians said, what do you think of our claim to which the Russians responded? What do you think of our claim? Then it's agreed. We'll all just sort of live and let live and get along. There's a bit of a, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours agreement, implicit agreement between the Canadians and the Russians there, not to, not to challenge one another's, which is why you will never see a Canadian uh, ship challenging those Russian straight baselines, which is why I don't think I've ever seen a Canadian government official say that you know Russia's historic waters and, and baseline claims in the Arctic are are nonsense. And so you've actually got our main enemy on side politically. While our main ally, the United States has been the chief antagonist for the Canadian claim, it has been the country that we have been most concerned about a challenge from. So it's a it's a it's a curious little reversal of roles for, from a from an Arctic perspective.
0: So uh, should I understand that no Russian submarine is entering Canadian Arctic waters?
1: Well, that's an interesting question, Lavinia. I can't give you an answer to that one. Um, they don't tell me when they sail up there. Russian submarine operations are are obviously very secret. Uh, there's some. Some you know indication that they may have been in the Canadian waters uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, but there's certainly no proof of that. Now, we do know that American submarines have been up uh, many times. There's some records uh, of the U.S. Uh, there's at least uh, nine recorded submarine transits through Canadian waters, but the American transits at least took place with Canadian participation. I doubt the Russians did.
0: Can you tell me a bit about the research process that went into your book? Um, when and why did you become interested in the Arctic as a topic for for research? And what convinced you that a new book on the Arctic was uh, even necessary?
1: Well, I became interested in the Arctic in um, early 2000s, right before people started to care about the Arctic. Around 2005, people started to sort of wake up and realize, well, global warming and oil prices, the Arctic may be back in geopolitical economic play. And so I was uh, just ahead of that that curve. And I, I recall thinking well, there has not been a real recent history of, of these very important Arctic waters. And like you said, this is a political history of the Northwest Passage, a very important body of water, politically very complex situation. There has been work done on this before. Uh, Sheila Grant, Elizabeth, uh, uh, Betsy, Elliott, Meisel. But those works were a bit older. And one of the big problems they suffered from was lack of, of documentation. So, I mean, you talk about research. This book was an extraordinarily difficult book to research because the Canadian government is sensitive about this subject for obvious reasons, because Legally and politically, it's still a bit of a hot potato. And the government doesn't want to give up documentation. Even dating back to the 1950s, uh, prying uh, government reports memoranda out of the Library and Archives of Canada required extensive access to information requests over many, many years. And so I think where my book adds a lot is 10 years of that kind of archival research, digging thousands and thousands of new pages out of the government's clenched fists. And I can tell you, uh, at one point when this book was going to press, I received, as the book was going to press, I received a package of documents from Canadian government that I had requested in 2005. So that was over 10 years that it took them to get me this material. I requested those documents as a master's student and it, it came out 10, 11 years later, which gives you an idea of, of, of quite how long sometimes it takes to get this stuff. Now that being said, I've all I've always said, well, in the 2030s, some enterprising graduate student is going to completely delegitimize my book because there's so much more out there. Uh, there's, there's an enormous amount of material that we don't have from the 1960s onwards so someday there will be you know the next iteration of this um and of course there's there's huge areas we know so little about so submarines you mentioned this book does does more than anything out there to track the history of american submarine operations in the arctic and all of that came from one archive where um i showed up and i said well you have this collection i'd like to see it well, I don't think we do. unless well, you do. I, I've seen on the internet some reference to it. So they went down to the basement and sure enough, they found it. I don't know if it's declassified yet. No, it is. I, I'm sure it is. I, I didn't really know, but I'm. it's important to act confident. So this fellow was either tired that day or he was retiring next week. So he said, here you go. And I got reams and reams and reams of American documentation on, on naval operations, which was classified the next year. So obviously it was not supposed to be given to me. But, you know, there, there's... Luck. A lot of that is just luck. A lot of it is, is, is just asking so many times that someone makes a mistake and gives you documents that the last five guys didn't give you. And it's just perseverance and, and trying from different angles to get all this material. And like I said, in the, in the 2030s, when it's just old enough, there will be some some PhD student that, that redoes this and adds a much fuller account. Because of course, there's so much, there's so much missing from this story.
0: So besides, you you made good use of um, a number of uh, archival collections, uh, but besides archival documents, did you did you reach out to um, any policymakers who were uh, keen on uh, the Canadian government? Uh, uh, institutions dealing with the Arctic mm. to interview or to have um, uh, discussions with them.
1: I certainly looked. Um, the problem with dealing uh, with history is that people tend to tend to pass away, and the book ends in 1985. Uh, effectively, well, it sort of goes up to 1990, but effectively, it, it sort of stops when Canada makes its claim to the Arctic waters under the Mulroney government. And uh, previous to that, almost every major policy actor has passed away. So most of the people who I'd like to speak to, unavailable.
0: In the book, you talk about the unspoken political agreement uh, between the United States and Canada that has prevented this sovereignty dispute from damaging the relationship between these uh, two countries. Is this still in effect?
1: It absolutely is. Um, I call it, uh, well, it's been called an agreement to disagree. I've called it don't ask, don't tell. I think it's a better way of looking at it. Historically, we're dating back to the early 1950s, late 1940s. The the underpinning international relations approach was if Canada doesn't, um, or if America doesn't ask Canada, which waters it claims is its own. Canada is not going to have to tell them, and we can just avoid that whole messy, messy circumstance. Because as soon as the Americans are forced to request permission to send cargo ships or submarines into our waters, we are forced to to clarify our position, and that clarity creates conflict because neither side can afford to surrender on the fundamentals of, the, of their point. And so that has... In one respect or another, it's changed, but in one respect or another, it has remained the case to this day. Now, we saw a bit of a, a speed bump back when Donald Trump was was president. And I wrote a piece with a colleague, Rob Hubert, which said, this, this 70-year-old policy framework looks like it's about to fall apart because the entire don't ask, don't tell uh, principle is based on a certain professionalism within the both governments, and an understanding that rocking the boat is not gonna help anybody. Uh, this is not about winning your, your position, it's about keeping an equilibrium where everyone is pretty happy. And so under the Trump administration, we saw some very concerning and interesting things coming out of their secret. the Secretary of the Navy, a man named uh, Richardson, and uh, chief operating, um, some of the uh, chiefs of operations in the U.S. Navy that were saying, "We're going to run freedom of navigation voyages through the Canadian Arctic. We're going to challenge Canadian sovereignty. You know, we're going to we're going to win." Well, the Americans haven't been trying to win this dispute for 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 decades for very good reasons. Now, as soon as the Americans conduct one of the, these freedom of navigation voyages, the Canadian government would be forced forced to either stop that ship or take it to court like we would be at the international court or there would be some very serious ramifications which would damage Canadian relations it would damage um, uh, Canadian American cooperation defense cooperation in the Arctic it would have knock on ramifications that affects trade policy immigration policy all kinds of relationships with the United States would be damaged this is why we have tried to push this disagreement to the side for decades and decades. Now, what actually happened was the operators in the United States, so not the politicians, not those who are appointed to high command, but the Coast Guard and the Navy and the State Department, people who have been there for a very, very long time, were able to get a hold of of their, their bosses and say, look, this is a bad idea. There's a reason we haven't done this ever. Here are the consequences and I think they thought twice about it. But there was, for a moment there, for a year or so, there was very real concern that that old, comfortable framework that has worked for so long was about to, about to fall apart.
0: Canada's presence in the North is shown as somewhat off and on, with military activities starting and stopping in the 1950s and again in the 1980s. Are we still seeing that pattern today?
1: We're not, actually. Uh, You're right about the historical pattern. Uh, Canadian Armed Forces have popped up north for five or ten years, depending on the crisis of the day. But over the last, I would say, 20 years, starting particularly in 2002 and accelerating during the Harper years, really, we have seen a real concerted effort to maintain and sustain a presence in the north. Now, that doesn't mean that the... Canadian Navy or the Army is always there. That's just not an effective way to operate. But there's an understanding that the the, the Canadian Armed Forces has a, a, a persistent role to play. They're up there every summer when the ice melts. We are conducting a lot more winter operations. There really isn't any indication that that presence is going to fade. And of course, given the increased uh, shipping oppor- um, opportunities in the North, given the new concern over climate change and the opening waters and the new activity, it's very unlikely that you're going to see the Canadian Armed Forces pull back. If anything, it's that presence is only going to increase. The Navy's got three Arctic offshore patrol ships. We have got several more uh, being built, a couple more for the, uh, the Coast Guard as well. The Canadian fleet and its northern capabilities is only going to expand over the next 10 years.
0: Uh, Let me remind uh, our listeners that we are talking today with Dr. Adam Lejeunesse about his book Lock, Stock and Icebergs, a History of Canada's Arctic Maritime Sovereignty, which was published with uh, University of British Columbia Press in 2016. This book is the first in-depth history of uh, U.S. submarine operation in the Arctic And there appears to have been a lot of that activity. With the Arctic gaining strategic value in the 21st century, are those operations likely to uh, to see a comeback?
1: Well, I think they definitely are. Uh, If you look at the U.S. Navy's recently released Arctic policy, it falls in line with the national security strategy, which is very defense heavy. Several years back, the U.S. Navy released an Arctic strategy that was very... um, cautious about the potential for, uh, strategic competition. The focus was on cooperation on the environment on sustainability and only, you know, in a couple of years, couple of years, the Navy recast that entire strategy and focused on strategic competition. In fact, the the head of the US Navy was asked by a reporter, like why would you make that shift? Why why rewrite your whole strategy and change it change it so quickly? And his answer was just well the damn thing melted. The Arctic was melting. That that's that is what forced our revision. And there has been a big revision and a lot of interest in the US government. The US Army Coast Guard, Air Force, Navy, the DOD, and the White House have all put out Arctic strategies over the last two to four years. So huge emerging interest from the Americans. So you're going to see a lot more surface and subsurface activity. The Russians very recently put out their new maritime strategy, which highlighted the Arctic as as a strategically central role to their national security. So there's no question that the Arctic is going to uh, remain probably the most important uh, maritime region for the Russian Navy as well. The Chinese are a bit of a wild card. They have two icebreakers and they're planning on building a third potentially nuclear-powered one, which would be quite impactful. Uh, But how they use those ships and whether or not they develop a strategic interest in the Arctic, well, that very much remains to be seen.
0: The book talks about the U.S. as Canada's legal and political opponent in the sovereignty debate. Is that still the case, or is Chinese and global interest in the Arctic playing a new role?
1: Well, it is still the case with the United States and in fact if you go back to stephen harper's first day on the job as prime minister he uh, opened that that tenure with a press conference where he chastised the american ambassador who had you know very recently reiterated the long standing american position that the northwest passage is an international strait and stephen harper said look we get we got our mandate from the canadian people not the american ambassador and it was it was points scoring pure and simple, but you know, it's very recent in, in the grand scheme of things. And it, it shows that this is still very much alive. And if you look at any American um, Arctic strategy, Barack Obama's, George, H. W., or George W. Bush, there's always that reiteration of their longstanding position that the Northwest Passage and the Russian Northern Sea Route are international waters, or that there is um, an international strait running through. So that, that long-standing dispute, it's very well managed, but the long-standing dispute is still there. Now, the Chinese position is very interesting. It's purposefully ambiguous. The Chinese released an Arctic policy in 2018, I believe it was, where they said that they recognize Canadian and Russian sovereignty to all of the waters over which those countries have a legal right to claim. Something along those lines. I can't recall the precise wording, but it was was worded in such a way as to say, we recognize your sovereignty in areas where you have sovereignty, without clarifying what areas you had sovereignty. So so the Chinese are trying to walk a very fine line. On the one hand, they don't want to recognize those maritime claims uh, because they may international travel, international shipping is very important to China and they want to they want to keep that open for the future but at the same time they don't want to antagonize the Canadians and the Russians whose support they need for Arctic operations. China has used the Northwest Passage um, it sent a, an icebreaker through several years back. We regularly send cargo ships through that passage to China and creating a fight. Uh, a political challenge, it doesn't do anything for China. So China has walked that comfortable fine line, neither challenging nor accepting either Canadian or Russian state sovereignty over those, those regions.
0: How about the Scandinavians? How about the um, uh, Greenland and um, the Scandinavian countries uh, that uh, border on the Arctic uh, area? Do, well, do they have any presence or do they have any or are they, they are they are too too small uh, international actors to really matter in comparison to the Canadians, Americans and the Chinese in the Arctic?
1: well it's not so much that they don't matter Lavinia it's that they have comfortably outsourced the job of challenging Canada's claim to the United States as many countries have So in the 1970s, when there was a a political dispute over the voyage of an uh, ice-breaking supertank in Manhattan, and again during the 1980s, the Canadian Department of External Affairs was watching other countries, the Japanese, the French, the British, many of the Germans, West Germans at the time, many of whom didn't necessarily support or respect Canada's claim. But none of those countries came out and said, this is incorrect. We don't recognize these claims. Because why would they bother? They don't want to ruffle Canadian feathers. They don't want to get into a fight if they don't need to. They're very happy. Historically, they've been very happy to let the Americans fight that fight. They've they've outsourced that to the U.S., which they know is going to going to maintain that that American position and broadly, you know, you know and broader position that the Northwest Passage is um, is an international strait.
0: Very interesting. What opportunities do you see for Canada to expand its control and defense of the Arctic?
1: Well, we're actually doing quite a lot right now. The Navy is producing one new Arctic and offshore patrol ship every year. We're getting... We're getting an awful lot of those coming off the ways now. We have uh, three, I believe, in the water. The Coast Guard is getting a couple. There are plans for new icebreakers. So both the Coast Guard and the Navy fleets are expanding or will be expanding um, quite significantly over the next Well, at present, up to maybe 10 years from now, where hopefully we should get a heavy icebreaker or two. Now, we've been promised those heavy icebreakers for the last 15 years, so I won't, you know, I'm going to hedge when I say we're getting them. But at least the, the, the patrol ships are being actively built right now. They're very capable. Uh, We are going to see, you know, six patrol ships up in the Arctic in the next uh, three to four years. I think we'll be up to about six Navy vessels that are going to maintain a significant presence, uh, a constabulary capability, a whole of government response capability. Canadian surveillance is improving with satellite capability. Canadian communications up north, uh, ground-based surveillance. NORAD is being modernized. What exactly that looks like, we don't know yet, but the Canadian government has pledged an initial $5 billion. So there is a lot happening. There's a lot of money being spent. There's a lot of steel being cut to actually, for the first time since the 1980s, to really put our ships where our mouth has been on Arctic sovereignty.
0: As the Arctic worms, where do you see challenges emerging to Canadian sovereignty now?
1: Well, sovereignty, you have to understand, is not simply a question of presence. Sovereignty is a legal question which represents or which implies a state's right, its recognized right, to exercise absolute sovereignty within a given area. And so, as I've said before to policymakers and journalists, you do not win sovereignty by sticking more icebreakers up in the Arctic. The Americans will not wake up one day and say, well, let's recognize Canada's claim. They're up to 10 ships. We weren't going to recognize it at nine, but now they have 10. It, it, it doesn't work that way. That presence that we have, that the ships, the surveillance, that capability, that is not sovereignty per se. That is stewardship that allows us to fulfill all of the obligations of a sovereign state those obligations being search and rescue, environmental preservation, jurisdictional enforcement, criminal law enforcement, fisheries protection, all of the things that you would expect from a sovereign state operating in their own waters. Now, as the Arctic warms, as I said earlier, we're going to see a lot more um, uh, operations. We're going to see a lot more activity, cruise ships, pleasure craft, everything from the enormous thousand-person cruise vessels moving through down to, you know, adventurers going through on skidoos and and kayaks and things like that. You're going to see a lot of, you know, criminal activity. You're going to see a lot of trespassing. You're going to see potentially evil, even uh, illegal immigration. That's pretty rare, but there actually have been a few instances of attempted illegal immigration coming in through the Arctic. As the Arctic warms, you're also going to have a lot more environmental issues, not just the melting ice, but so much of Canada's infrastructure, our communities are built on permafrost. There's going to be serious problems maintaining transportation infrastructure all the way down to individual homes. We're going to figure out how we resupply those areas better. We're going to have to figure out how we build in the Arctic better. We're going to have to figure out how to communicate in the Arctic better because we still don't have reliable internet or reliable communications, telecommunication systems across the North. So climate change is going to change a lot about the Canadian North and not just from a security perspective, but from a development perspective, a human perspective, a delivery of service perspective, the Arctic is going to look very different in 20 years from now.
0: Adam, your argument is centered on law and politics. What about the people living in the Arctic? Is it important for them if if Canada, Russia, the U.S., China, or some other power asserts sovereignty? Or they wish for self-determination, and from their point of view, it doesn't really matter
1: what state is there. Well, historically, the, the people of the Arctic, and we have to generalize here because there is no one uniform opinion or even one uniform people of the Arctic. The Arctic is comprised not only of, of, of white settlers or southern settlers, but of many different you know, cultural, linguistic, you know, historical groups. Very, very you know, separate uh, opinions about development and about the state but if we're going to generalize historically speaking the people of the arctic have been very much in favor of a strong canadian state position on sovereignty the reason being is that state position that the northwest Passage is entirely canadian lock stock and icebergs uh, that allows canada to regulate those waters very strictly so who can go through shipping lanes, uh, environmental regulations. This is very much to the benefit of Northerners, uh, because the alternative is IMO regulations, which govern global waterways, which are not as strict. And so in the 1980s, for instance, when um, uh, the the US icebreaker Polar Sea went through the Northwest Passage, it sort of kicked off the political uh, fight between the Americans and the Canadians, which led Mulroney to tell Reagan that it's logstog and icebergs. Um, one of the things which forced the Canadian government to respond to that was um, the, the 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 Inuit Inuit organizations uh, saying you know, if the Canadian state is so weak that they can't protect the Arctic, then maybe we should, you know, look to other alternatives. We ought to do it ourselves. You know, (laughs) there was criticism of the Canadian state coming from the Inuit for not taking a firmer position on that. And that, you know, somewhat shamed and pressured and contributed to the federal government actually turning this into a bit of a fight.
0: If if you were to rewrite uh, that book, or publish a second updated version, Uh, what would you change if everything, um, or if anything, what was left out of the book and uh, merited uh, uh, inclusion in the second uh, uh, edition?
1: You know, I think it stands fairly well. That's one one of the joys of writing history is you can write something and be fairly certain that it's going to stand 10 years into the future. I write quite a bit of... Um, international history, international relations, strategic studies work, work on China's Arctic interests, uh, Russian geopolitics. And I know that that's going to be out of date in a year. Um, events will, will render that uh, out of date very, very quickly. But the history here is quite solid. And until, the, like I said, the next enterprising individual comes and digs out the next batch of government documents to prove me wrong, uh, I think it, it stands fairly well.
0: So so your future plans uh, when it comes to research on the Arctic uh, is um, um, you know looking for new archival uh, treasures somewhere that you can uh, access uh, or um, where 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 would you go in the ne- next uh, five years to say when it comes to your research on the Arctic
1: Well, over the next five years, there's a couple of very related projects that I'm working on. Uh, The first is a history of icebreaker operations in the 1950s, and it's kind of an adventure story. There's a lot of histories out there of early Arctic explorers, uh, Victorian explorers and wooden ships, dramatic stories, but for some reason in the 1950s, Historians tend to say, I guess the exploration is all done. You know, it's all over now. Not the case at all. Um, really incredible stories from the 1950s as the Americans and the Canadians learned to operate in the North. Hundreds and hundreds of ships sent North on defense research and construction projects, literally hundreds. And the Americans will send 300 vessels and about seven of them will come back undamaged at the end of the, the operation. Uh, a couple will have sunk, a couple will have grounded and maybe a hundred or so will have suffered serious damage. Several men chopped up by helicopter uh, accidents. It's mean, just a, an incredible adventure story from from those early years of modern exploration. That's one of the next big projects to tell that story, the history of learning to operate in the Arctic, of modern exploration. And of course, the next big book is a continuation of uh, the, the history of Arctic submarine operations. And that's just a continuous 10 to 20-year process of trying to pry documentation out of various government bodies. You know, I've discovered a lot more since writing this book, but, but not quite enough for a follow-up. So you'll have to ask me in 10 years how that's gone.
0: That's very exciting. And uh, uh, for sure, I'll keep this in mind. Our guest today at New Books Network was Professor Adam Lajones, the author of Lock, Stock and Icebergs, A History of Canada's Arctic Maritime Sovereignty, a book published with the University of British Columbia Press in 2016. Thank you again, Adam, and g- goodbye.
1: Thanks very much, Lavinia.